Thanks for joining us for Access Utah today. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking archaeology today. The Rocky Mountain Anthropological Association is holding its biannual Rocky Mountain Anthropological Conference in Logan. And uh, that is uh, beginning today and running through uh, Saturday with such interesting topics as Japanese railroad worker archaeology in central Utah, uh, historic filming locations of uh, Utah. Uh, we're going to talk in t- about ice patches. Climate change is affecting archaeology, and melting ice patches are uh, yielding up treasures. And uh, what does that tell us, and how do you preserve those? Uh, also, uh, what about archaeology after wildfires? Wildfires are increasing in intensity and frequency. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, bison and wolves as well. Uh, much to talk about regarding this uh, conference. We have with us uh, three archaeologists uh, in the studio. Uh, we have with us uh, Craig Lee, uh, who who does uh, research, I think, in the ice patches, right? Oh, yeah. Yes, sir. Thank you, Tom. Um, and uh, where, where are you based? Well, a, a couple of different locations, actually. Um, we have uh, active projects running uh, primarily through the University of Colorado at the Institute of Arc and Alpine Research, but also at Montana State University in Bozeman. And uh, uh, we also have, um, uh, I guess, allies that are working uh throughout the greater Yellowstone that are associated with other outfits. And we, at, at this point, have all been very collaborative and collegial. So it's yeah. actually probably a worldwide network for that matter. Oh, great. Uh, Larry Todd joins us. Uh, so I think you're back based in Wyoming. Yeah, I, um, I'm a professor emeritus, which means um, I get to do everything I did when I was a professor but don't have that pesky paycheck. Mm-hmm. I grew up in northwestern <laughs> Wyoming in a small town called Matitsi. And growing up there, I wanted to get out and see the big wide world. And after getting out and seeing the world, I finally decided I need to retire and go back there. And so I'm focusing my research on the backyard in the mountains, my backyard in the mountains when I was growing up and trying to learn more about sort of my home landscapes. Uh, and uh, Ken Cannon joins us, uh, one of the organizers of the, of the of the conference. You're based here in Cache Valley, right? Yes. Thanks, Tom. Uh, yes, I have uh, my own consulting firm called Cannon Heritage Consultants, and I also have a research position at Utah State University. Yeah, so. wonderful. Uh, so let me t- let me start with you. Uh, this is a biennial conference. Um, I met uh, just to mention a few of the presentations. A wide range of things presented. Yeah, so um, the Rocky Mountain Anthropological Association was uh, was organized. We had our first conference, as Tom said, in in 1993 in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and mostly we were trying to um, find a forum for for archaeology in the Rocky Mountains. Um, for a long time, Rocky Mountain archaeology had always been kind of um, this peripheral or hinterland to either the Great Basin, the, the um, Great Plains, or the Riverine areas, and no one really. S- saw it as being central to our understanding of of human occupation and human settlement of, of North America and native, native uses of these areas. But more and more over the 80s and into the 90s, we were seeing a lot more exciting archaeology up in these areas, and we really wanted to have our own, our own focused conference where we could come together um, and, and visit with each other, share new ideas, and, um, and just, you know, just a, a good forum for, for our specific type of archaeology. And so the, I guess the organizing principle is the human history of the Rocky Mountains. Exactly, yes. <laughs> um, so what, uh, well, you know, let me turn to, to you, Craig Lee, first uh, on this. Uh, what can archaeology 
do for us, uh, you know, other than just an academic, well, just is a bad word, right? <laughs> Speaking with the three academicians, but, right. uh, you know, what can archaeology do for us? Well, I mean, archaeology is, um, I guess, from my, my personal perspective or what I, I sort of feel about it, at least, is that it's a, it's a way that you can essentially time travel. Uh, you can take yourself out of the, the spaces that you live in and are familiar with and uh, go to uh, other locations where uh, activities happened and occurred, and you can see uh, ample evidence of that activity, and you can put together a story as, as best as possible. I mean, it's always hard to say with 100% certitude, right, that, that things transpired the way you might imagine they transpired, but you can make your most uh, compelling argument and you can use uh, scientific reasoning to get you there. And uh, I think also it's a, a wonderful way to access um, parts of uh, the past story of humanity, basically, that are not written down in some mechanism by which we would usually say we're we're familiar with being able to get at it right by reading or something uh, you know watching a, a particular movie depiction we certainly have to uh, convey the information to the public in that way but as as we get out there and start to explore it we are are able to see things that are not uh, written down and it's another way to to access this past that we all share hmm. before we went on the air you were you uh, you gave us a Stegner quote Remember that? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was from Mormon country, and Ken was uh, interested, and we were talking about it and my fondness for this. And uh, I said, archaeology makes us judge of a past culture by the contents of a small boy's pocket. <laughs> that kind of puts you in mind of, I guess, the, the fun of archaeology, yeah. right? Not a complete picture. That's the, yeah. the take-home from the quote is, is, right, you have certainly the things that are in the small boy's pocket are, are real, but are they totally reflective of all of a, a given culture? And of course they are not. Yeah. So, Larry Todd, that general question, what uh, what's the appeal, what's the attraction, what's the usefulness of archaeology? Um, for me, um, I'm sort of an odd archaeologist. Uh, Craig talked about the time machine. And my interest in archaeology is not so much about the past. I'm interested in thinking about how to maintain integrity of landscapes into the future. And archaeology gives us the time depth of understanding sort of how landscapes in all their sort of complex mosaic forms have developed with people as part of them and uh, the wildlife as part of them and the geology as part of them. And so for me, the archaeology is a way to connect with those landscapes and think about how to maintain the integrity of the landscapes into the future. Hmm. Uh, Ken Cannon, one of the presentations, I believe, uh, at the conference is going to talk about the intersection of archaeology and public policy, right, and how archaeology can inform public policy. Yeah, and exactly uh, following up on, on what Larry was talking about is um, we do what what I found um, when I first started, work, I worked for the National Park Service for 21 years and, and spent a, a lot of that time up in, up in Yellowstone and got to know a lot of the wildlife biologists and started, you know, to looking at, at how they were using or misusing, I guess, in my, in my opinion, archaeological data and how important 
the archaeological data, in our in our opinion, I think, is to that record of understanding of how these systems came to be the way they are today and how we can manage them in the future with, with climate change and other issues. Um, so that's, you know, a, an important part of my interest in archaeology and, and the forum that we've, we've put together um, for this conference as well. And we've got a wildlife biologist that's going to be part of it, Dan McNulty, who's been working up in Yellowstone for a long time. So I, I think it's, it's important that we, that we look at this entire record when we start making these decisions about how we're going to manage our landscapes because they didn't happen in 1920 or whenever a park, like in case of Yellowstone in 1872, that's, that's kind of what we always use as a baseline. Well, there's a long, long history there that we, we don't consider and how these systems mm-hmm. develop and how that might inform us for future management. Um, so that's kind of, you know, my soapbox right now is, you know, that we need to use to use that record to, to understand where we're going and if we really want to preserve these places and and understand how how they can how they how we can move forward with them. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, Yellowstone example, the 1872, um, is a real sort of significant way to think about it. That's a snapshot of what that park landscape looked like. And as archaeologists, we say you need to watch the whole movie, not just that ending credit of what it looked like in 1872. Mm-hmm. And that snapshot, I think, uh, has carried, still carries a lot of weight, right? Oh, yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's huge. Yeah, yes. That's what they, yeah. they try to manage it towards. So what, what is, are there inaccuracies in that snapshot? <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> I suspected that would be the answer. Uh, so elaborate, please. What are, what, are the, what are the key inaccuracies in that 1872 snapshot? Well, I think um, in that snapshot of 1872, you see very few people in the picture. Um, and so that's the way that that everything's done, that wilderness landscapes, park landscapes are locations where you go to get away from people, that they're the natural, pristine, um, on-people places. And the archaeology uh, that we've been doing for years demonstrates that that's simply not the case. Uh, the reason that there weren't many picture people in the picture in that snapshot in 1872 was largely because the people who had been living there had been moved out. Uh, they'd been uh, disease, um, reservations. Uh, people had been removed from the picture. So there was some editing going on in that picture. Um, 1872, they didn't have Photoshop, but it's sort of a Photoshop-like picture with a key a component of the environment not there, the apex mm-hmm. predators not there, the, the humans that were there, mm-hmm. the key landscape engineer. You know, we talk about beavers being landscape engineers. Humans were a big, uh, were a major part. So you've removed a major component, a keystone component of that picture when you've got that snapshot without the humans in it. And so that's going to affect, uh, I guess, present and future, right? How you manage the lands. Well, Yes and no. I mean, one, I don't think that most folks would uh, would say that we need to, uh, you know, integrate, for instance, active hunting practices in Yellowstone National Park. That would take away from what it is. Uh, but I think it's disingenuous, for sure, to not uh, regularly convey the fact that the ecosystem as it existed for 10,000 plus years, basically since the glacial ice came off, was 
when it was an intact ecosystem, it was a peopled landscape and people were active participants, not necessarily just always acting as predators, but uh, they were engaged in those spaces and, and seeking perhaps some of the same things that we seek there today as, as tourists or visitors, which is how the, the parks wonder. describe it. Yeah. yeah, enjoying the wonderment of it uh, for sure. But uh, I think that we just we need to make sure that we're being transparent and 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 clear and uh, and honest and reflecting what was transpiring in those locations throughout the maximum breadth of their existence. Yeah, because I think um, sorry, no, no, Tom, but I th- yeah. you know kind of following up on that, I think there's always been this this kind of perception of of Native Americans and their impact on landscapes and stuff that they're always just kind of floating above it and didn't really have an active relationship to the land, but, but they were actively hunting. They, we, we know they were using fire to, um, to generate new growth um, for, for different plant resources, but also for, for game drives and different things. So they're actively part of the system. And I think, you know, we've, we've romanticized the Native Americans for so long, and it's not you know, to get into this argument that they had a real heavy impact on landscape like Euro-Americans do, um, but, but they were part of the system. And I think that's something that we've, we've kind of forgotten and, and taken out of the equation and, as Larry said, edited out of the, out of the picture. And, I, and I, I think that's it is disingenuous and doesn't really tell the whole story of, of what, you know, what, what our landscape was like and how it came to be. And, mm. That's an interesting phrase, and as soon as you uttered it, I thought, yeah, that's kind of how I've been picturing it, the, the Native Americans floating above the land. Uh, and uh, you, you uh, went on to use the word romanticize. Is that part of it? It's, it's well, yeah, I think it is. Yeah, there's there's always been this romanticization of, of Native Americans, and it goes back, you know, I don't know, going back in our anthropology classes, um, you know, for hundreds of years, how we've, 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 we've thought about them, and it's, um, and they, you know, like like humans are, they've always been part of the system, and I think that's something that we we don't mm-hmm. understand very well, or at least don't put into the equation when we're discussing how we manage landscapes, yeah. especially public landscapes. Is this um, is this part of the interpretation in the parks? Do you do you think this is accurately being portrayed? It's getting better. Mm-hmm. It's getting better, but uh, it's still pretty pretty far from. I think we're. Uh, as an archaeologist, at least <laughs> archaeologist, we'd like to see it. Yeah, and you know, it transcends. I mean, this is not just uh, you know a, a Yellowstone issue. This is you know the whole of of wilderness and wilderness space. Yeah, let's take a break. When we come back, I wanted to I want to talk about wilderness uh, specifically uh, and how these ideas uh, shape our ide- ideas of wilderness. That gets us into public policy again. Um, so we have uh, Craig Lee, uh, uh, Larry Todd, and uh, Ken Cannon, three archaeologists who are participating in the Rocky Mountain Anthropological Conference, and that's happening today through Saturday uh, in Logan. Ken, at the Riverwoods? Yes, the Riverwoods Conference, Conference Center. Center. Yes. Is that open to the public? Um, it hasn't normally been. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. But if someone wants to pay the $120 registration fee, all right. they're we'll, welcome we'll, to come. We'll put it out there, <laughs> $120 registration fee. All right. Uh, and so this is your chance uh, to hear about some of these uh, 
um, ideas uh, right here on the radio. You're uh, able to join this conversation if you would like. Yeah, a couple of ways to do that. There's a phone number, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Or you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. More following this break. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking archaeology on the program today on the occasion of the Rocky Mountain Anthropological uh, Conference that's happening today through Saturday in Logan. We have with us Ken Cannon, one of the organizers of the uh, conference, who's based in uh, Cache Valley. Um, Craig Lee and Larry Todd also join us, uh, prominent archaeologists in the Intermountain West. Um, so we... Before the break, we we promised we talk about wilderness. So, um, I don't know who wants to to jump in on this. Uh, the, we have an idea of wilderness as uh, these are lands that are pristine, and I think human involvement in these lands is key to our idea of wilderness, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's uh, as the Wilderness Act is written. Uh, wilderness is our lands that are untrammeled by man, and man is only a visitor. And so this idea that these areas today, and I don't want to sound like I'm not in favor of wilderness areas, I think the preservation of landscapes in as pristine a condition as possible is a tremendously positive goal. But the notion that humans were not part of those landscapes is a very transient view of them. If you, it would be like trying to understand the landscapes without looking at the geology. Part of what forms those landscapes today, uh, especially in the, the Rocky Mountains, are tectonics, but also humans have shaped the landscapes for the last um, 13,000 years. So if you really want to go out and appreciate and um, it, 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 the wonder of a landscape, uh, you've got to somewhere in your back of your mind understand that people were part of it. To give you uh, a concrete example, in 2002, I started doing research in the Washakie Wilderness Area in northwestern Wyoming. And at that time, there was one archaeological site recorded in the entire wilderness area. And when I talked to the Forest Service about doing research up there, they said sort of basically, sure, knock yourself out. You won't find anything. Uh, it's wilderness. Um, haven't you read the laws? Um, in the last 18 years, I've looked at 0.7% of the Washakie Wilderness systematically doing archaeology and recorded over 200,000 artifacts. Mm. Uh, that's a pretty high density of material in a very small area. Uh, people were all over those wildernesses. It's not just transient hunting parties or things like that. We have large occupation sites at high elevations. Uh, we have occupation sites that may have been there um, throughout the year, even in the depths of the winter at, at relatively high elevation sites. So the, the perception of people only being visitors, it works in national parks today, but it's not the time depth. It's, I talked about an uh, interest in preserving the integrity of landscapes, and the integrity of landscapes is also part of that story, as Craig was saying, of people have been part of it. Mm. So then what does that mean? Yeah, I, I could see one interpretation if uh, someone's anti-wilders. Well, yeah. people are already there, the high density. Let's go in and that density today. 
what the heck, right? <laughs> well, there. I mean, there actually is. I mean, to kind of one of Ken's points earlier too, talking and Larry's as well, talking about how we understand landscapes through time. So not just gazing backwards, but also thinking about where these resources might come into play for us in the future. I mean, if if uh, some of these dire predictions and scenarios that are put forward by climate modelers uh, really come to pass and and do put really significant pressures on the large numbers of people that are now occupying places like the Yellowstone River Valley. Uh, you know, I'm talking, you know, this would be really extreme, but, uh, uh, you know, climate and climate change is quite extreme. And, you know, there are probably demonstrable needs to understand how these environments uh, operate and what kind of carrying capacities they have, uh, what kind of, uh, you know, resources are there for you know, the maintenance of human groups over long term, over the long term. And that's certainly how I think they operated for uh, native peoples in the past. They're sort of a pressure release valve in a way, too. I, I, I'm fully in agreement that they were up there all the time and continually. But, uh, you know, you probably have periods of intensification if you've got hot, dry conditions down on the on the, um, you know, in the Bighorn Basin, let's say on the eastern side, uh, very nice to be able to retreat just a little bit up valley and get some new uh, environments to interact with. So. Mm. Uh, and you think that might might inform our decisions in the future? Well, uh, we'll see where it goes, right? Mm -hmm. I guess that's one thing we can all do is we, you know, if we don't want to try to read the tea leaves and look into the future, we can just sit back and let the winds blow us where where it will but i would far prefer to be open-eyed coming into uh you know partic particularly some of these more extreme scenarios and see you know what the potentials are yeah uh, any other thoughts on that yeah i think you know following up on on on, on craig's and larry's ideas yeah it's it's not that we're advocating for the dissolution of, of wilderness areas. There's incredible reasons for having wilderness and you know, we have lots of literature uh, on on the on the importance of of uh, places to go for solace and, and contemplation and lots of different things. But to really understand what 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 made these places the way they are, it's we, we need to know the whole story. And 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 there's a lot of information up there that can help us mm -hmm. start managing into future mm -hmm. climate scenarios and stuff so there's there's a lot up there and it's not that we're advocating getting rid of wilderness area and stuff but it's we we want we want people to be more informed about about these systems and and about how how people have been part of it and we've you know and there's a huge there's a huge heritage there right and mm -hmm. but since it happens in these spaces that we don't perceive at least at present to have this uh, this human connection when when loss occurs, let's say through fire, which is one of the things that Larry has worked on a lot. Um, we, uh, you know, when when the the irreplaceable archaeological record gets burned up, when hunting structures get burned up, and that stuff dissipates, and then you have subsequent you know rain events and mud flows and so forth from these unusually heavy fires. There's sort of a sanitization that happens of the past and the same is true you you had mentioned earlier tom some of the melting ice patch work that contains some of the you know perhaps most interesting um you know, from the highest alpine environments at least uh archaeological record that's the most uh uh informative and perhaps of of um you know greatest interest in that it places people 
uh, Native American people, you know, the people who are the original inhabitants of this land, you know, at the apex, at the very highest points in these environments, as that stuff melts out and, and disappears again, it's sort of a sanitization of the archaeological record and without adequate funding to be able to go and interact with these spaces and learn and, of course, also be able to bring in Native people to these spaces to, to reintroduce them, basically to put people back in their place, not that their oral histories don't keep them there you know, now and they don't have, it's, they have that encoded in their histories, but I think it's useful, it's a bridge to us and to European folks and archaeologists to be able to, you know, engage with them around talking points, things that, that we can all have some commonality of understanding around. I think that's, uh, you know, we need to get our eyes open to what these spaces that we call wilderness were really like when they were occupied and functioning as a normal ecosystem. And um, wildernesses were people's homes. And one of the things that I'd like to have people take away from that is the idea that when you're in somebody's home, even if they're not there, uh, they've lived there for millennia and have the respect for it. Yeah. It uh, seems like we're having trouble with your microphone there, uh, Larry. Okay. Does that work better? Uh, seems like we're still still having trouble there. Let me uh, let me have uh, Nick go get our engineer and uh, see if we can fix this. Uh, so we'll we'll come back to yeah. There we go. We can, you can, we can share share, yeah. share a microphone okay. in the meantime. Yeah, thank you for doing that. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, repeat what you said, please. Well, one of the ways that I would like us to think, or that I think of wildernesses, is that they're they've been people's homes for millennia. And even though the people who lived there for those thousands of years aren't there right now, uh, when you go into somebody's home, you need to respect it, uh, respect that it's been part of their, their habitat. And for me, it increases um, the sense of participating in the wilderness just to be on a spot that you re- realize that people have been at for thousands and thousands and thousands mm-hmm. of years. You can be in the wilderness and be all by yourself, but you're still on places where there's that those shadows of people that have gone before all over around you if, you're, if you know what to look for. Um, they, there are people in the wilderness. They're just not um, necessarily always living people. So that's interesting. That, that that's a way to reconcile these two ideas: uh, wilderness being untrammeled by man, but understanding that there man has been there before, right? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see if your microphone is working now, Larry. How's that? Is that? Yeah, working? that's sounding a lot better. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I want, I want to well, let me just to reintroduce our uh, panel here. Uh, we have with us Ken Cannon, who's one of the organizers of the Rocky Mountain Anthropological Conference. That's happening today through uh, Saturday. Archaeologist in the Cache Valley area. Uh, we have with us uh, Larry uh, Todd and Craig Lee, archaeologists. Uh, uh, based Larry Todd in Wyoming, correct in a place called Batitsi, Wyoming. Batitsi, where is that? Where is that near? It's um, well, it's just north of Jibo. Okay, well that <laughs> no, it's it's that uh, orients it perfectly south of Cody, Wyoming. So, Cody, it, Cody, it's okay. near Yellowstone Park. Okay, all right, uh, I recognize Cody. What was the other town? Jibo. Jibo. So. <laughs> Jibo and Matizzi, okay. I'll have to go visit. Um, I'm sure it's beautiful. Oh, it is. It's yeah. the home of the black-footed ferrets is what oh. it's known for. Oh, really? Oh, last. nice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and Craig Lee, where are you looking well, at? Well, I, I, I do a lot of the, the research in the Alpine, at least through the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research, which is at the University of Colorado in Boulder, but actually get to live most of my, my time is spent in Bozeman, Montana. So mm-hmm. I also have a nice connection with Montana State University. Yeah, I hear that's beautiful campus well yeah there everyone is beautiful i was just amazed i had the good fortune to come down uh, a couple days here in advance of this uh this conference to put a small uh 
traveling exhibit up actually on Ice Patch Archaeology, which is a free and open to the public exhibit that's at the uh, uh, Utah State University's Anthropology Department Museum. Uh, and uh, at any rate, I was just amazed at how incredibly beautiful Logan is in the campus, and I uh, just can't get over it. It's really remarkable. Yeah, USU is a very beautiful campus mm-hmm. uh, as well. I don't mind putting in a plug for Heck no. our, our USU. <laughs> uh, so I do want to get into, um, by the way, you can join this conversation if you'd like, 800-826-1495, toll-free number 800-826-1495, or you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. I do want to get into uh, Ice Patch. So this is a way that... Um, Climate change is affecting archaeology, right? So, so tell us where these ice patches are and, and what's happening. Well, they're, they're hardly uh, just a local phenomenon to the greater Yellowstone area. They are uh, undoubtedly a worldwide uh, occurrence of these, these, these features. They are not glaciers, so they're not uh, large things that move under their own uh, weight. They don't experience that kind of plastic deformation that can chew up a mountainside. Instead, these are, are little, uh, relatively speaking, bodies of, of permanent ice and then snow frequently covering the surface of them that uh, are, are in Goldilocks-like environments, just static spots where they can pick up enough snow to persist year after year uh, and yet not build up too much snow so that they start to, to flow and and deform and move, and consequently, they can act as these little uh, freezers, these little ice chests that can collect a lot of things that uh, that make their way into them. Uh, one of the number one things that we see is is uh, the presence of animals, uh, primarily in the form of their scat, uh, where they're going out to these ice patches just to cool their feet, or uh, further north in Alaska, Yukon Territory, Northwest Territories, even Alberta and. British Columbia, in the more northern parts, uh, we know they're escaping insect predation. Um, I don't know that that's quite as big a driver down here, but there are also little oases that provide uh, fresh forage and water late season. Um, And so we get windblown plant material and all kinds of interpretable records in association with these spaces. But what we realized really started to happen uh, in large part uh, due to some work that colleagues in the Yukon were were, were undertaking in the late 1990s was that there was an atypical melting that was occurring. There's always been an ebb and flow to these locations, but they were seeing wholesale uh, melting and collapse of these features and you know, very clearly organized uh, spaces within them where there was stratified deposits of uh, snow and then you know, windblown organic material, more snow and windblown organic material. You've got to imagine it sort of stacked up like the seven-layer bean dip. Well, at any rate, the climate was uh, was causing that all to, to all of the snow to dissipate and melt out. And so you're getting all of this organic material dumped into these you know, huge piles, which can have a lot of feces, as I noted, uh, in them, but this other windblown stuff. And sure enough, it was not something that was just local to the Yukon, but um, colleague E. James Dixon had pursued some National Science Foundation funding with my colleague Bill Manley at uh, at Instar, and we were able to look in Wrangell St. Elias National Park, and from there, it's you know really spread at this point now throughout um, uh, Western North America, but it's occurring in Norway, it's occurring in Europe, and 
very sadly, with the exception of another uh, uh, colleague at the University of Colorado, Will Taylor, who is actively working in Mongolia on ice patches. He's just completed his second season working there. So that's really the first uh, continual project that's been occurring in, in Asia. There's a huge swath of Asia that just remains unknown in terms of what might exist in ice patches. So that ice patches are these, uh, uh, w- when it's not melting, mm-hmm. can these be studied? You know, there's, there's little freezers and it preserves these these yeah. things. Is uh, I mean, it when they're melting, that yields up. Does it yield up more? Is that an advantage? Well, uh, that's uh, the, the silver lining in the in the bad stuff that's happening there. Or? Well, we phrase it that way as a, as a silver lining, but uh, you know, it's it's only a silver lining if we go out there and find material associated with it, and it's only uh, a silver lining if we figure out how we can absolutely maximize our return. Uh, on the effort that we put forth, and uh, you know, unfortunately, we're still really struggling uh, to get the resources to be able to uh, engage with these things in the most thoughtful manner that we could, and that would really be the you know inclusion of more native people in the projects and getting people uh, involved and in coming out. Uh, we've had some of this, and I don't want to, you know, we have certainly have had um, you know wonderful opportunities, but there's a lot, you know, more that we could do, and it's. Uh, it's a little disheartening when we when we step back from it and say, well, you know, look at what can be done, for instance, in um, uh, Bern, Switzerland, you know, where you've got a, a, one of the cantons there that would be roughly the size of one of our large counties out west here. You can have 100 allied researchers working on one location, and uh, in all of western North America, we've got maybe about a dozen people that have been able to... Mm-hmm you know, sc- scrape together the, the, the effort to, to get out and work in these spaces. Hmm. It occurs to me there might be people listening who want to help. Can, can they contact an archaeologist like you? And Yeah, we have. Uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult. Um, you know, hiking conditions can be, um, you know, quite strenuous. Uh, uh, this last field season we had um, uh, wonderful students, um, uh, Mara Gans from Middlebury College, um, uh, Marie Taylor, Paul Buckner from Colorado State University, and um, um, uh, Madeline uh, we may from University of Chicago. So it's it's something where we've been able to get you know some students out in the in the field. And then this this year actually was not quite the ideal year, um, which is a good thing in some respects. Uh, we're really sensitive to you know interannual variability in snowfall. And as you guys might remember, we had quite a bit of snow. Uh, last year, at least we did in the the more northern parts of the GYA, and consequently, that does not mean that we're going to have as much of a, a field season um, this year. But also, you can't wait around forever for again the Goldilocks field conditions too. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So I, I assume we're losing some some of these artifacts if if the freezer breaks. To continue that metaphor. Yeah. Then uh, some yeah. some of this stuff that's organic that's preserved is yeah. is going to deteriorate, isn't it? We have a very narrow window to be able to go out and engage with it. And even though we've uh, been able to identify some remarkable materials and been able to share it through things like this, uh, you know, little museum exhibit that um, you know has been traveling around. It this is its eighth uh, small community that it's been in in the Greater Yellowstone area. It's the first one in Utah that it's been to. There are undoubtedly countless ice patches that we have not visited and that perhaps have already melted out um, significantly in the past and lost a, a great deal of their archaeological record. Yeah. What are we What are we learning? What do we learn from some of these artifacts that are melting out of these ice patches? 
Well, we're learning they're a big part of that story of understanding a peopled wilderness, that people have been there. But aside from that, uh, Craig was talking about all the other materials that are preserved in this ice patch freezer. And if you want a long-term record of climate in the mountains, the ice patches are going to have one of the best potential records preserved down through that ice column. Um, So you ask about um, researching the ice patches when they weren't melting. And Craig especially has done a lot of work with coring down through the ice patches to get um, columns of material through time to monitor changes in it. So if you want to talk about change, you need some baseline information. And the ice patches have a lot of that baseline information. So when we talk about them melting out, we're not just losing information about the archaeology. We're losing a lot of the climate history uh, of our our mountainous areas. Mm. And that's an aspect of climate change that a lot of people don't think about, right? Well, absolutely, and it's one of the things actually that worries me in a bigger picture is is the um, you know the archaeological record is incredibly important, and what's in that ice. I don't want that to go away and not be there as, as something that future generations can articulate with, uh, you know, regardless of whether it's anthropogenic warming or not. The the material is being exposed in some instances, material that's more than ten thousand years old, right? So I. You don't have to sit around and point fingers uh, while the library is on fire. The thing that you do is get the books out of the library, mm-hmm. uh, and then we can sit around and point fingers at each other afterwards. But uh, what I what I worry about is that these little ice patches exist in the uppermost reaches of you know, many of these little mountain valleys. You're not just talking about the big glacial uh, melt rivers, but they act as these little bulwarks against dehydration in the in the upper alpine and if they lose that old ice core as that goes away i think we're going to see a a trophic issue uh sort of tumble down the mountainside and i I mentioned the amazing forage uh, that's associated with them of course it's enriched by the animal feces but they're these little nucleating sites i've had some wonderful um plant specialists be able to come out and participate on these field projects and they've identified interesting uh, plant forms where they're growing you know normally plants that are very dispersed are growing in these pincushion forms so you could uh, you can envision that they are are little nucleating sites that could help um, uh, you know keep biodiversity you know rich in these these small little alpine enclaves and if the if that core that water source goes away we're we're looking at additional issues in addition to losing the archaeology, in addition to losing that ancient record that's trapped in the ice that we can extract through cores. Yeah, the ice patches are sort of our canary in the mine about um, snowpack and runoff and water resources. Um, there's a whole series of interconnected things that, that deal with what's going on with the snow in the mountains that affect all of us that don't necessarily live in the mountains but uh, live off the water that is uh, initiated up there. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to, uh, the beginning of the next segment, I want to talk, uh, Larry Todd, about your re- research on fire uh, and what that does to archaeology and the artifacts. Um, and uh, I want to turn to Ken Cannon in the next uh, segment, talk about your presentation on bison. Um, in, in This is Yellowstone? Yeah, in the Yellowstone area. In the Yellowstone <laughs> area. Also the presentation on wolves as well. Um, and I want to get into that as, as well. Uh, we're previewing the Rocky Mountain Anthropological Conference that's happening today through Saturday in Logan. We're talking with Ken Cannon, Craig Lee, and Larry Todd. We'll have more following this break. 
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're uh, talking about archaeology on the occasion of the Rocky Mountain Anthropological uh, Conference, and that's happening. Happens every two years, right? Yes, that's correct. And it's happening uh, right now, or it will be uh, later mm-hmm. today, uh, and going into Saturday. Some interesting um, topics of discussion, including the ice patches that we've been talking about, uh, how climate change is affecting archaeology. Uh, we talked about how this affects wilderness and our idea of wilderness. There's a very interesting um, discussion. I think this will be happening uh, right off the bat th- th- uh, Friday morning. Uh, a, a topic uh, on the, I guess, the old prison and uh, and how there's there's artifacts kind of uh, stratified there and what that tells us about the about the prisoners. That's an interesting topic. I hadn't even thought of lumping in with archaeology, right? Uh, Japanese railroad worker archaeology in central Utah. And this I didn't know. I was reading the abstract for this. Apparently, uh, after big anti-Chinese fervor and and anti-Chinese immigration laws, uh, still needed work on the railroad. And so Japanese workers uh, picked up that slack. Yes, yeah, that's true. Yeah, so Japanese were were, um, recruited to come and fill that niche. Uh, this would be an interesting uh, t- topic. Uh, historic filming locations of Utah. So uh, preserving these sites, and I guess, and identifying these sites. Uh, Utah has been a s- uh, site of many, many Hollywood films. So, Yeah, I think they've uh, identified over 500, 570 locations of films that date back to the 1920s in Utah. So Utah has always been a pretty popular spot for, for movies, not just Westerns. Yeah. And uh, before we went on the air, our, uh, our engineer, a friend Weller, was talking about um, airplane archaeology, I guess, uh, uh, looking, investigating air crash sites. And that, that's, that's part of this field as well. Well, archaeology, um, you started off asking why should we care about archaeology, and one of the things that archaeology contributes to is methods for investigating things like um, airplane crashes. Uh, Archaeology is a lot like the methods we develop are a lot like a crime scene investigation. Um, Archaeologists are specialists in recording minute pieces of apparently trivial information and trying to put those together into a bigger picture. So just the basic methods of archaeology have some fairly wide reaches, uh, trying to reconstruct what happened at a place at a previous time. And regardless of whether it's a plane crash or a crime scene or a 10,000-year-old archaeological site, there's some commonality in the methods. So we, we often work across a number of disciplinary boundaries. I, I always uh, say that archaeology is a great thing for people with, I call it, academic ADD, of people that um, can't really stick with one research topic, that they love geology, they love ecology, they love plants, they love animals, they love digging in the dirt, they love playing with their computer programs. So archaeology requires you to <clears throat> do many of those sorts of things. Mm. Uh, so context is very important and implied in, in what you just said. So if, if I'm out and uh, encounter an artifact of, of some kind, I, I'm uh, I think I'm clear on the fact I don't, I'm not supposed to pick that up and take it home, right? Uh, so what what should I what should I do? Um, 
take a picture of it, take a GPS location of it. Um, when you get back, if it's on federal land, um, contact the, the federal land management agency and let them know where it is. Uh, the context is tremendously important. And most of the archaeology I do in the wilderness is what we call catch-and-release archaeology. We don't take any of the artifacts or very few of the artifacts that we find um, back with us. We leave them there. So their contextual um, relationships with other artifacts and with the landscapes is not modified by us doing archaeology. We only take back the things that are at risk, like the things uh, coming out of ice patches or things that require specialized analysis. So I'm trying to do an archaeology that follows sort of the leave-no-trace principles of we're researching the archaeology in the backcountry, but we're not modifying it or damaging it while we're doing it. My, my goal is, is to be able to take my grandchildren into the mountains and show them those artifacts in their natural habitat. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more meaningful thing than showing them those artifacts in a shoebox in a drawer or in a museum display to have them there on the landscape to where once you've seen them there, you connect with that landscape in a very mm-hmm. different way. That requires, uh, I don't know what that requires, protections? I mean, there there's still people who probably want to remove those artifacts. So that's a lot of what we spend time doing is trying to um, engage the the people that are out there a lot and explain why it's important. If you just say it's illegal to pick up artifacts, that doesn't really carry much weight uh, in a lot of people's minds. But if you explain why collecting, picking things up is removing parts of the, the puzzle. A few years ago, I did a museum display where I had a jigsaw puzzle of a picture of an archaeological site and invited people to take pieces of the puzzle home. Um, And you very quickly see that every time a piece is removed, that picture of what's going on is degraded. And that's what happens when you collect something from the past. You're taking part of that piece of the puzzle home, and it might be an interesting shape to the puzzle piece. It might have some interesting colors on it, but it doesn't tell you a whole lot about what the whole picture looks like. Mm. Yeah, Craig Lee, you're nodding your head. Well, yeah, and I just, you know, I think the thing is, is, you know, we, everybody can appreciate the, you know, the sincerity on the part of, of folks who are interested in in you know Native American culture and in in archaeology it doesn't have to, there's a lot of historic archaeology up in the Alpine too there's old in the mountains in general and the wilderness there's ghost towns and other sorts of things and I you know but the the joy is is I think if you can help people see that do you know exactly how cool you feel in this very instant that you've just discovered this old painted sign on a old roadway uh, and how amazing that is, and you have this moment of, of aha, how cool, and if, if, you, if you deface it or if you try to chip it off and take some of it home, you, know, you deny the next person the opportunity to see that, and that's, I think, this, I mean, it's kind of a, just popped in my head here, but I was thinking about when I was younger, I used to do some caving uh, or spelunking, and if you, if you would go into a cave, you'd always have the sense that you were the, the first one there until you got down in there and then you found some garbage. Mm-hmm. And that is always heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And so in an archaeological context, you, you know, we always have to let our imaginations run away with everything that has walked off the site conceivably. But, you know, if we can just and I, I would far prefer to be able to talk openly and share the information with the with the public uh, and not have to worry about the one percenters that are the ones that would uh, swipe stuff and take it away because the, the, the large portion of the population are, are well-meaning and, and good folks and uh, just game and interested and sometimes maybe we'll make a, 
a, a poor decision on on picking something up. But again, if we don't talk about it and uh, try to explain why, just like Larry so eloquently put, taking pieces away from a puzzle really takes away a lot from the puzzle. Larry, how hopeful are you? Do you think you will, you know, take your grandkids? How about their kids? You know, can they take their kids out and see these places? Boy, that depends on the day of the week you ask me the question. Mm -hmm. Um, Some days you'll be out with a group of kids and um, they'll just get it and you're real excited. Um, I mentioned that we do catch and release archaeology, that that means we can go back to places where we found artifacts and see if they're still there. And even in the backcountry, it's amazing how after five to ten years, those sites have been degraded. And on those days, uh, you just want to – I'm glad the walls here are padded. You want to pound your head on the wall mm-hmm. and um, rather than having the joy of discovery that Craig was talking about. It's that grief of, of loss, of uh, it was there, it's gone. That information has been erased from the past, that burning library thing. Mm-hmm. The, the books are ashes often. Yeah. So. Yep. I'll turn to uh, uh, Ken Cannon and get your uh, your brief abstract of your talk on uh, you're involved in uh, the talk on bison in the greater Yellowstone area and its role. I'm reading the title here. It's role in the ongoing debate on wildland management. Um, so, yeah, thanks, Tom. So um, we put together this this forum, um, actually, and it's involving Larry Todd and uh, Robert Hitchcock and his work in Africa and also Dan McNulty and um, trying to get us together to, to talk about like we were talking about earlier, um, the relevance of archaeology and, and, and pre-contact studies to, to management. And um, when I first started working up in Yellowstone um, in 1989, uh, it, was, it was a period of time when people were actively talking about reintroducing wolves and, and, uh, and also um, the number of bison that were there and how bison were, were, um, were causing all kinds of, of issues when they we're leaving the landscape and stuff and going, um, particularly with bursillosis and stuff. And I started getting involved with, with, um, with some of the wildlife managers there and wildlife biologists there. And, and they were really interested in, in what the archaeological record could tell us um, about how long bison were here, how bison had used the landscape, um, and how that might inform us for, for managing. Because mostly they're, I think, particularly interested in how many bison have always been there. There's a number of bison there today, which is, I think, six seven thousand now in yellowstone maybe um is that have they always been there is that number always been there um and that's something that i don't think we could ever get at those those numbers but i think bison have um they they kind of represent um this um this particular issue that um that keeps recurring in Yellowstone, and and um, and it applies well to wildlife management and also the application of archaeology. And right now, there's a there's a debate about whether bison were even part of the the ecosystem and whether they contributed in um, the ecosystem. There's there's folks out there, historians and and other researchers that are arguing, looking at the same archaeological record that I am and the same historical record that Lee Whittlesley and and Paul Shalari and those historians are looking at and coming to the conclusion that Yellow. Yellowstone never had a large population of bison and not a breeding population of bison. And and part of that is um, their misunderstanding of the archaeological record. Um, one of the things that, that we deal with, and going back to um, that quote from Wallace Stegner, is that the archaeological record um, is subjected to a whole number of different forces, both natural and cultural. Um, so what we come to see as archaeologists has been 
degraded by preservation issues, um, people um, high-grading the record, taking things away. So there's lots of different forces that that affect the archaeological record. And a lot of these people that are looking at our record, they, they look at the broad numbers. They look at the, the raw numbers and say, okay, we only have 126 sites in Yellowstone that, that have bison or something small like that. Um, so bison really weren't part of that system. But we do, they don't understand the archaeological record and how it came to be. Um, so that's kind of where I've gotten up on my soapbox is trying to understand the record um, and all these different preservation forces and stuff that, that impact what we do, not to mention the amount of archaeologists that are actually working out there. I mean, Larry talked about, you know, less than 1% of, of the area that he's focused on. There's, you know, it's, it's tremendously... Um, labor-intensive work that we do. Um, lots of blank spots on lots, the map. Lots of blank spots right. on the map. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, an important part of what we're trying to do is to is you kind of use the bison as, as a good example because they're they're an icon in the West, um, and but they're um, but they're also a flashpoint uh, in management right now. A lot of people are on, on both sides of whether or not, you know, how, how important bison are to the system. So... Yeah. That's kind of my research is continuing to try and understand bison and, and the system from the archaeological Interesting. Record. And we'll have to leave the discussion there. We're out, out of time. Oh. Much uh, much else could be said, and it will be said at the Rocky Mountain Anthropological uh, Conference, which is happening today through uh, Saturday. We uh, have with us uh, Ken Cannon. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Tom. Uh, Craig Lee. Thanks. Thank you very much, Tom. And Larry Todd. Thanks for talking with us. And if you'd like to know more about this conference and the association, rockymtanthro.org is, uh, is the place to go. And thanks for listening today.